Today on the Joseph Carlson Show, the U.S. economy added 372,000 jobs in the month of June. This can be viewed as either good news or bad news, depending on how you look at it, but the market is reacting to this positively, and we'll go over why. We also have news that this man, Sonny Belwani, he is kind of the co-founder of Theranos with Elizabeth Holmes. He got found guilty. He was found guilty by the jury on all 12 fraud accounts. So Elizabeth Holmes did not get found guilty on all of them. Sonny Belwani did. And we're going to dive into why. What makes up the difference here? And then we also have another topic I want to dive into. One of my biggest holdings is Apple. And Apple is also one of Warren Buffett's biggest holdings. It's one of his most successful investments ever. He has it as 43% of Berkshire's portfolio. And he's been adding to Apple even with the price going up and making significant gains. He continues to buy more of this company. He recently just added $500 million to this position. So we've had the question, why did Warren Buffett buy Apple? Why did he buy this company in the first place? And now we finally know the answer. So in this episode, we'll be going over the story of why Warren Buffett purchased Apple. And then I also want to do a little segment at the end of this video where I respond to some of the comments in the YouTube video. I'll reply to Bain Investments saying Bill Ackman has a lot of influence over your portfolio. Or the question from Micah Taylor saying, last week you convinced me to look at Ally Financial and this week you bought Canadian Pacific. Can I ask why you chose the railroad and if you're keeping Ally on your short list? We also have another question. Canadian National Railway, CNI is bigger than Canadian Pacific, the dividend yield is higher, and the valuation is cheaper. And I'll address these comments at the end of this episode. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Before we do a portfolio update, I want to get to some news here. We just had breaking news that the U.S. added 372,000 jobs in June. Like most economic news, this can be viewed either way. Good is bad and bad is good. We added 372,000 jobs, and that showed signs of weakening under the weight of high inflation and high interest rates. Now, a weakening economy is normally a bad thing in normal times, but when we have high inflation, a slightly weakening economy means that the Fed funds rate going up is doing its thing. It's working. It's actually having an effect. If it wasn't having an effect and the economy was getting stronger and overheating more and more, that could be problematic. What we don't want is a large recession. There may be fears that the economy is slowing, but the labor market is a point of strength. While this job market does require looking with a careful eye, it remains healthy and does not look like a labor market on the edge of a recession. So that's also good news. We have a low unemployment rate of 3.6%. The downside here is the labor force participation rate. This is the amount of people that are even seeking a job. They're even in the job market. It ticked down. It went from 62.2% in June from 62.3% a month earlier. So less people are looking for work altogether. Participation dropped broadly last month with declines among men, women, workers in their prime ages, of 25 to 54 and baby boomers. Across the board, less people are looking to work. So we can take a look at what the job loss looks like since the beginning of the pandemic. We had the initial massive drop-off since the service sectors fired everyone, and then we have the rapid increase in jobs since then. And it looks like we're getting back to square one, where we were before, but again, that was two years ago. If we are following trend, we should be far above where we were two years ago. Because typically in a healthy economy, as time goes on, more people are working. But in this case, it's been two years and we still have less people working than we did 
before the pandemic. And they note in the Wall Street Journal that there's this huge demand for workers and the economy is rapidly cooling. Consumers are starting to pull back on spending, partly because of inflation, which is running at a four-decade high. Home construction is slowing as the Federal Reserve attempts to pull down inflation through aggressive interest rate hikes. Manufacturing production is declining as Americans are reluctant to buy big-ticket items and household goods. And we saw in the last episode that I did that people are also starting to spend their savings. They're no longer just spending money that they're earning. They're now actually dipping into their savings. So this can be viewed, again, as good news or bad news. Right now, it doesn't look like we're headed into a terrible recession, which is the good news, but the economy is slowing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Growth is happening, but the participation rate remains very low. And we almost have as many people working now as we did pre-pandemic. If we're following a normal trend of a growing economy, it should be well above 2019 levels. So when I read this type of economic news, how does it affect my investing decisions? Not really at all. I know there's a chance we might go into recession, and I'm confident that every company and every sector of my portfolio Although their earnings will go lower, their earnings will have to be revised lower, that's something I'm prepared for. Overall, these businesses will survive a recession. Even if the jobs market is weaker, even if we go into a slight recession or a deep recession, I'm very confident in my portfolio. Now, moving on, we have some news that was a little bit surprising to me. Sonny Balwani was found guilty on all 12 fraud counts, all 12 of them. Now, Sonny Balwani worked hand-in-hand with Elizabeth Holmes. But let me go ahead and refresh your memory on this subject. Miss Holmes was found guilty on four of the 11 fraud charges against her and acquitted of four, and the jury couldn't reach a unanimous conclusion on three. So when it came to Sonny Balwani, the jury really was confident on the conclusion on all 12 accounts. He was guilty on 12 out of 12, no being confused about the verdict, no disagreement, he was guilty on every single one of them. And then when it came to Miss Holmes, the one that masterminded this whole thing, the one that put it entirely together, the one that literally was in a romantic relationship with Sonny Balwani, they worked hand in hand, the jury wasn't so confident. They acquitted her of four, and then they couldn't reach a unanimous decision on three. So she got away with being found guilty on four of 11 fraud charges. Does that sound fair to you? In my opinion, that doesn't sound fair to me. The people most familiar with this case that actually worked at Theranos's labs that worked with these two individuals on a daily basis said, quote, I considered Mr. Balwani and Elizabeth Holmes to be unified in all of their decision-making processes. They literally texted on a daily basis. They live together. They're in a romantic relationship for years. Yet there's a massive discrepancy in the verdicts reached by the jury. One of them was found guilty on 12 out of 12 accounts, and the other was found guilty on 4 out of 11. Now, I know the thing that everyone's going to jump to here is that men do get harsher treatment in verdicts like this in some cases, and maybe that does play a role. But maybe the jury was just more persuaded this time. They say that Mr. Balwani was in charge of the company's lab, where the blood testing occurred, and was quick to rebuff and sometimes fire employees who raised any concerns about the performance of Theranos technology. So 
he was kind of the one doing all of the work. He was the one hands-on with it. That may have given the jury more evidence that he was directly involved in all these little minute decisions, all the important defrauding that went on in Theranos. He was responsible for the financial models given to investors that greatly exaggerated the revenue. Out of the financial models that both Elizabeth Holmes passed off and Sonny Belwani passed off, he's the one being blamed for it simply because he was in direct responsibility over those financial models. And he managed the company's partnership with Walgreens. So he was the one that really just implemented all the stuff that Elizabeth Holmes wanted to have happen. But the suggestion here is that because Sonny Balwani was the one directly implementing these things, working through these things, and he had closer contact to them, that he's more responsible than Elizabeth Holmes. And I don't think that should be the case at all. She knew about everything that was going on. She knew that her tests weren't accurate. She knew about the relationship with Walgreens. She knew that her financial models were gravely exaggerated. She knew about all of this information as much as Sonny Balwani. He was just the one working directly in these positions. But she was privy to it. She was aware of it. She knew about it and allowed it to happen. And she held the bigger role in the company. She was the founder of it. Sonny Balwani at the time was an employee. Yet she was found not guilty on many of the accounts related to these. And again, even the people that worked the most closely with Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani said they were unified in all of their decision making. This wasn't like Sonny Balwani was some rogue player that went into Theranos and he, he went against Elizabeth Holmes' plan and did all of these things she didn't want him to do, exaggerating, saying that the technology worked differently than it was. If you read about this case, she was aware of all of it. She was part of it. She was the one leading this charge. Sonny Balwani was complicit in it. He was definitely a part in executing it. But the fact that she got out of all of these charges while he got convicted on them, I think is a miscarriage of justice. I think both of them should have very similar verdicts. So in my opinion, I'm not upset or disappointed that Sonny Balwani got convicted on all 12 accounts. He's likely guilty of all 12 of them. I am disappointed that Elizabeth Holmes didn't get convicted on all 12 accounts, especially the ones relating to patients. She worked hand-in-hand -hand with Sonny Balwani. Everything they did was unified, and she had more responsibility at the company than he did. He was executing the plans that she laid out. So I don't think there should have been such a huge discrepancy between the conviction. But regardless, that is the jury's decision, and there may be information that I'm not aware of that the jury was presented with. Now, moving on, I want to go into the subject of Apple and specifically why Warren Buffett bought this company. Apple is the top company in my portfolio. It's my biggest holding. I currently have a holding value of around $50,000, 14,000 being gains. So this is a company important to me. This is also a very important company to Berkshire Hathaway. They call it one of the pillars of Berkshire. It's not just another business. It's not just another holding that they plan on trading in and out of. This is an entire pillar of Berkshire, like Coca-Cola or Geico. You have Apple. I think one of their next very long-term holdings. But a big question that people have had for a very long period of time is why did Buffett originally buy into this company? What made him put so much money into Apple? There's lots of different theories there's that it's just a great company with a wide moat. There is the theory that it was trading at a low P.E. ratio. But none of those really explain fully why he committed so much capital to this company and why he continues to hold it to this day. Here's when the news broke back in 2016 of Warren Buffett's original purchase. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has taken in a $1 billion stake in Apple. 
According to a regulatory filing report released today, Berkshire held almost 10 million shares of Apple in its first quarter. The company is possibly betting that the tech giant will rebound after a slowdown in iPhone sales. That's the original news of its first purchase, $1.07 billion. And as the news person there says, maybe they're just betting for a quick rebound to slowing iPhone sales. Obviously, that wasn't the reason. And one of the interesting pieces of news about this billion dollar, 70 million purchase is that this wasn't Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett had nothing to do with this original purchase in Apple. Warren Buffett handles a lot more than a billion dollars. So when you see $1 billion purchases at Berkshire Hathaway, in most cases, that's one of Warren Buffett's lieutenants. So this original purchase into Apple had nothing to do with Buffett. He likely didn't even know about it. But then one year later in 2017, Warren Buffett sure knew about Apple and he was buying heavily into the company. One of the fellows in the office has about 10 million shares and I have for Berkshire's account about 123 million. So he got about 133 million shares. One of the fellows that's Todd or Ted? Yeah. Would you care to say which I, I one? I never identify no? which one yeah. does which. One of the fellows in the office bought 10 million shares. I bought over 100 million. And he continued to buy more and more Apple throughout 2017. But Warren Buffett avoids the question, who bought it? For what reason? He just goes on giving his Warren Buffett-esque general information about how Apple's a great company. One of them bought and then you, as a result, bought some additional? One of them had, had 10 million shares. And then... I bought another 123 million shares or something like that. Why? Because I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you I liked it. Well, Warren Buffett, you could expound a little bit. We want to know why you liked it so much to buy 120 million shares of it. He likes a lot of things. He likes Coca-Cola. He likes Geico. He likes Seize Candy. He won't shut up about Seize Candy, but he bought 120 million shares of Apple. And Warren Buffett does his things of where he gives these very general answers that don't really explain much. The good news is the secret's out. In the book After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company, it explains why Warren Buffett bought so much Apple. Let's go ahead and start off with the beginning of the story, and it starts off with a man named Ted Weschler. Ted Weschler is one of Warren Buffett's lieutenants that does his own stock picks. He kind of has his own stock portfolio within Berkshire Hathaway. Now, he didn't become the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, but he is a prolific stock picker. Very good at picking very good stocks. Ted Weschler, an investment manager at Warren Buffett's investment company, Berkshire Hathaway, had been following Apple for several years. He considered the iPhone to be more effective than Coca-Cola at creating a loyal customer base. Once people bought an iPhone, they seldom switched because they didn't want to have to learn a new operating system. Apple's lock on those customers meant that it could charge them to store photos on iCloud, listen to songs on Apple Music, and collect fees on the apps that they purchased. So Ted Weschler realized the lock-in of customers with the iPhone, that you have one device and it creates a more loyal customer base than even Coca-Cola, which is of course one of Warren Buffett's favorite companies that he's held for decades. He recognized that Cook was taking the ecosystem that Jobs had created and wringing more revenue out of it, turning the iPhone into a subscription-based business that would generate cash for years to come. He also liked that Cook continued to repurchase shares, something he couldn't fathom Jobs doing. He quietly accumulated a $1 billion stake in Apple when the price was around $27 a share. That was pre-split. So this was at very cheap prices all the way back in 2016. And that's when it was revealed 
that they bought that $1 billion stake. This is all because of Ted Weschler. He was the one that had the original investment thesis on Apple. Now, the next part of this story is how he convinced Warren Buffett to go into this company. On a visit to New York, Weschler talked with Berkshire Hathaway board member David Sandy Gotsman about his Apple investment. The 90-year-old Gotsman had become a billionaire after founding the investment advisory firm First Manhattan Company and befriending Buffett. He had been an investor in Apple for years and loved its products. He told Weschler that he took his iPhone with him everywhere and he'd been devastated when it slipped out of his pocket in the back of a taxi. Quote, I feel like I lost a piece of my soul, he said. So now we get to the part where he talks to Buffett. When Weschler relayed the story to Buffett, his boss perked up. Buffett was struck that his friend at his age felt that way about a piece of technology and decided to dig into Apple's business. The Oracle of Omaha, as he is known, had a strong aversion to investing in technology companies. He made investments in businesses that he understood, and he considered many tech business models as foreign. He also had a poor track record with the industry, most notably in a 2011 investment in IBM that had performed poorly. But after hearing the Gotsman story, he began to pay more attention to the iPhone being used around him. Buffett wondered what it would take for an iPhone owner to switch from Apple to Samsung, the battery-plagued brand. During his Sunday trips to Dairy Queen with his grandchildren, he noticed that they were always absorbed in their iPhones. He realized that Weschler was right. The iPhone wasn't tech. It was a modern-day Kraft macaroni and cheese. The product had a grip on users and popular culture that could endure years. At his direction, Berkshire added to its position in Apple, bringing its total investment to $7 billion. From there, Warren Buffett continued to buy more and more Apple, and he's still buying it to this day. But if we break down the reasons that Warren Buffett bought Apple, is it because he ran the company through a discounted cash flow calculator? Is it because he did a cash flow analysis of it and compared Apple's valuation and P.E. ratio to other similar tech companies in the same industry? No, those aren't the reasons that he bought the company. I'm sure he looked somewhat at the valuation of the company, but there was much greater concerns for Warren Buffett. You have to keep in mind that he likes to own companies for life, for decades, companies that have enduring business models, Geico, Coca-Cola, and Apple. The reason why Warren Buffett bought this company over so many other companies that traded in the same range, in the same valuation, is because of the moat it had, because of the switching costs, because of the grip that it has on every single user of it. He realized that this company, Apple, is not a tech company. It is a consumer staple like Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. Weschler said that Apple's better at creating a loyal customer base than Coca-Cola. So Apple is not viewed as a tech company by Berkshire Hathaway. It's not viewed as a value investment because of low multiples. That's not the reason that they bought the company. That's not the reason that they continue to buy it to this day. They view it as an updated consumer defensive company that has much higher margins, has a better growth path, and has more lock-in on its customer base. So that's just a quick note on why Warren Buffett bought Apple. And I think equally as important, not why he bought Apple. He did not run the company through a spreadsheet and print out the buy. He looked at the qualitative reasons. He observed his grandchildren using the company. He listened to stories of people feeling like they lost their soul when they weren't next to their iPhone. 
That is something that you can't put into a calculator. So keep that in mind when you're making investments. You're buying companies that have products and business models. You're not just buying numbers. Now, moving on, I want to jump into the comments section and reply to some of your comments from the previous episode. Before we do that, I have to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor. It's FTX US. You know them as a large crypto exchange where you can buy and sell all these different cryptos for very low fees compared to their competitors. Another thing that a lot of people don't know about them is they're going across all different verticals, from crypto to NFTs to stocks. And this is what I'm interested in. I don't do a lot with cryptocurrency, but I do a lot with stocks, especially ones that I consider to be free cash flow generative great companies like Amazon. Now, I've gotten early access to the beta of FTX stocks, and I really like it. It has a simple interface. It's very easy to use. You can buy and sell fractional shares anytime the market's open. There's no payment for order flow, so they're not selling your information. And they're FINRA and SIPC insured. Now, currently stocks is in beta. They're working hard to roll this out to more users and building out more features. And I get to see them roll out more features every single week. It's pretty cool to see. If you want to sign up right now, do so using the link in the description below. I have two links, one of them for desktop, one of them for web. You can sign up using either. The important thing is to use the refer code Carlson. My last name, C-A-R-L-S-O-N. If you type that in, upon your first $100 trade, you'll receive a $10 credit. So you get an instant 10% return with your first trade. That's a pretty good deal. And it also helps out the channel because it lets them know that I sent you. So sign up now. It takes two minutes. There's no fees. There's no upsells. There's nothing like that. It's very easy to do. And let me know what you think of it. All right, now moving on, let's go ahead and jump into the YouTube comments section. What I'm going to do is a new segment from time to time where I reply to some of the comments in my most previous episode. So if you want me to potentially reply to one of your comments, I'm going to go through and read every single one of them, and I might reply to what I think are some of the best comments left. So go ahead and leave comments in any video, and there's a chance I'll reply to them. Let's go ahead and go through three of them. The first one is from Bain Investment. Bill Ackman has a lot of influence over your portfolios. Um, This is a comment that I I received a couple of them. So Bain Investment is the one that I just chose, but a lot of people said because I'm investing in Canadian Pacific, and that's one of Bill Ackman's holdings, He has a lot of influence over my portfolios. This is somewhat true and somewhat not true. And I want to go over the influence that he has. I do consider Bill Ackman to be one of the best active investors in the world right now. I would consider him to be top five. And I know a lot of people don't like him because he went on to CNBC and said hell is coming and he had shorts on the market. But what he was saying was in line with his positioning. He thought the market was going down and he was betting against the market. That's something that I think was in line. He also explained that there's a lot of misconceptions about that. That's something you can read about online. So I realize a lot of people are in the camp where they don't like Bill Ackman. But I think even putting that aside, he is a brilliant investor. He's had annualized returns of 17% per year. He's played this market over the past three years better than almost any other investor. He's both been short and long at the right times and he's made very good investments. So I do consider Bill Ackman to be a great investor. I have no problem sharing investments with him. And I do look at his portfolio and updates to see if there's any investment that he does that is one that I also like as well. Now, in terms of having a lot of influence over my portfolios, I share a couple investments with Bill Ackman. Right now, the only one that I'm really fully invested in that Bill Ackman is also invested in is Domino's Pizza. We share that investment. That is $17,000 of the passive income portfolio, which is around 5%. 
So our total portfolio overlap as of right now is 5%. Another position I'm building into, which is Canadian Pacific, is another one that makes a very minor role in Bill Ackman's portfolio. So I might have potentially down the road around a 7% overlap between my portfolio and Bill Ackman's, between the passive income and his. I have more of an overlap with Warren Buffett between just Apple being invested in both of our portfolios. So I don't consider that having a huge influence, having around 5 to 7% overlap. In fact, I think that's very minor. In the story fund, if you're referring to my other portfolio, a lot of people make the incorrect assumption that I invested into Netflix following Bill Ackman. That's not the case. I was invested in Netflix for a full year before Bill Ackman ever entered a position. And once Bill Ackman sold out of Netflix at a quick loss, I didn't sell out of the company. I'm still holding it. For for better or worse, I'm still holding on to Netflix. So Bill Ackman had really no influence in any way over my Netflix position. The next comment we have is from Micah Taylor. Last week, you convinced me to look at Ally Financial. And this week, you buy Canadian Pacific. Can I ask why you chose the railroad and if you're keeping Ally on your shirt list. I assume you mean short list. Yes, I'm keeping Ally Financial on my short list. It's on the watch list. I'm looking if it goes through any significant dip, and I'll explain why I chose Canadian Pacific over Ally Financial. Ally Financial's numbers look cheaper. It looks like a cheaper company than Canadian Pacific. So a lot of value investors will be more drawn to Ally Financial than Canadian Pacific. But as we just saw with the Warren Buffett example, just the price In most cases, for a long-term investment, the current price is not the biggest consideration. And I know a lot of value investors will, they'll fight that, but that's really what I believe. I don't think the current price is the biggest consideration. Now, it has to be a consideration. You have to make sure the price is reasonable, that you're not paying an unreasonably high price for something. But if you're looking at pennies, if you're looking at the differences in pennies between one company and another and one of them qualitatively is much better, the qualitatively slightly more expensive company will outperform the company that has less good qualities and is slightly cheaper. I consider Canadian Pacific qualitatively to be a much bigger moat company. Railroads are few and far between. There's only a few class one railroads. No new ones are being built. They require a ton of regulation and red tape. And as you've seen, I like those type of companies. It's the same reason that I was attracted to Vici as an investment. It's a ton of red tape and regulation to build any new casinos. And there's no new Vegas Strip. So I like companies that have massive moats, things that you can't compete with, that you can't replicate. And what Canadian Pacific is doing cannot be replicated. There's no other way to do anything similar. Ally Financial, in the meantime is a business that doesn't have too much of a moat. There's JP Morgan Chase, there's SoFi, there's Block Financial, there's PayPal. There's a lot of different online uh, online investment brokers and savings accounts. There's a lot of people in their same territory. It's highly competitive. It's nowhere like a railroad. So that's the first reason why. And I think that Canadian Pacific does deserve a premium over Ally Financial that's pretty a pretty good premium over it for that reason. The other consideration here, a big consideration, and ultimately the one that kept me out of Ally Financial is the used car market. Used cars went up 44% in one year, and there's a chance they could drop precipitously in price. If that happens, and a lot of people ditch their used vehicles because they're underwater by a large extent, Ally Financial will repossess them quickly. They will sell them off at at a loss, and they'll take on those losses. 
So the used car market is something that concerns me. When you buy Ally Financial, you're exposing 70 to 80% of the income of that company to the used car auto loans. And again, that's something that concerns me. So for those reasons, I wanted to focus on durability, wide moat, longevity, and a company that also has incredible free cash flow and earnings power. When I looked over the different railroads, I considered the different options, and I looked at Canadian Pacific, and I agreed with Bill Ackman's argument on it. I think that this Kansas City Southern acquisition will be very meaningful for this company. I think it's going to be an extremely dominant railroad connecting Canada, the US, and Mexico all together. So I decided to go with that one. I realize it's not as exciting, and some value investors may think that it's not as much of a value investment, but I disagree. Qualitative attributes are incredibly important, and that's the reason that Warren Buffett decided to invest in Apple. It wasn't because it was the cheapest company in the market. Moving on, we have another comment from Naturewide. Canadian National Railway, CNI is bigger than CP, which is Canadian Pacific. The dividend yield is higher and the valuation is cheaper. All of those things are true, Naturewide. I'm not going to argue with them. And let me be clear about something here. When you're investing in railroads, when you're picking between Union Pacific or Canadian Pacific or CNI, I really think you're choosing between better and best and slightly best. I think all of these are good investments. I really do. Union Pacific has beat the general market for the past 10 years. Canadian Pacific has outperformed it by a little bit. And then CNI has also performed really well, beating the market. All these companies are really good. So I'm not saying one of them is bad. And maybe CNI will do better over the next 10 years. But I'm not just looking at the current state and the current valuation. I'm looking at how events might unfold over the next 10 years. And I really believe that this acquisition of Kansas City Southern is something that will be really accretive to the investor. Connecting seven metros together from Mexico to the U.S., to Canada, is something that we don't really have right now. That will give Canadian Pacific an advantage. And I think the reason that other railroads are priced a little bit cheaper is factoring in the potential effects there. So again, I think you're right, and I think that all these railroads will do well. The one I decided to go with is just Canadian Pacific. And I feel fine going with Canadian Pacific, but I also would not mind having Canadian National Railway, or Union Pacific in my portfolio. In fact, on my Discord with other members, we went back and forth arguing about the different options, and many of them are in the camp of Union Pacific and CNI, and a few of them are in the camp of Canadian Pacific. But either way, I think all of us will do well. If you're investing in railroads, they're not exciting companies, but they're highly durable, they're going to be around for a very long time, and they generate large amounts of free cash flow. So in any case, I think you're going to do well. That's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. Have a happy Friday and I'll see you in the next one.